Well, hello, this is Colin McEnroe. Uh, we're going to do a show today on curfews. The idea was first brought to us uh, by our very excellent intern, Khalil Rahman. Uh, and it's taken a little while to get this show uh, going, but it's going to be a terrific show. A curfew, well, first of all, it comes from an old French word meaning to cover the fire. The idea being at a certain time, as the world gets dark, they wanted you to go inside. And towards the end of the show, we're going to talk about some of the earliest curfews. Uh, in the days before actual street lighting, when the night was almost considered a different jurisdiction. And that idea never entirely went away. So we have all kinds of curfews right now. The world has all kinds of curfews. COVID-19 has occasioned curfews from everywhere from all of Puerto Rico to all of the last I checked, India. Uh, it's one of the ways that people think that they can maybe put the brakes on the disease. But we won't have too much time to talk about the COVID part about of it. We're going to talk about how it's been used by law enforcement in times of protest, especially in June of 2020. And as I say, we're also going to talk about its earliest origins, which are just this fascinating journey into a t into the time when the night was a very different place. But we're going to begin with the most common and persistent kind of curfew in America, and that is the juvenile curfew. Uh, there's probably still about a dozen uh, towns and cities around Connecticut that have such a curfew on the books, not always enforced, uh, and they're all over America too. To a certain degree, these curfews, this notion that people under 18, people 16 and under, whatever, should be indoors unless accompanied by an adult after a certain time of night. So it's to a certain degree a product, I think, of post-World War II expansion of leisure time, the sense that, you know, uh, young people were less likely to be workers and more likely to be juvenile delinquents. But it's also a very old idea, even here in America. I found a quote from Benjamin Harrison, President Benjamin Harrison, who referred to curfews as the most important municipal regulation for the protection of the children of American homes from the vices of the street. So that's how far back it goes. And it's still around. It's frequently challenged in court. It's frequently analyzed. Uh, and there are some pretty obvious questions about whether, in fact, such things accomplish their their objective. Here to talk about that uh, are some guests that Khalil has uh, lined up for us. Mike Mills is an American socio uh, sociological researcher at the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice in San Francisco. Uh, and Calfani Toure is an assistant professor of criminology at Quinnipiac University and a former police officer. So, um Mike Mills, I'm going to begin with you. Um, one of the things that you've looked at just sort of analytically is whether or not juvenile curfews accomplish their stated purpose in a kind of global sense. What can you say about that? Well, we we found in every study we've done and in every study we've reviewed that's a legitimate study of curfews that they do not work to prevent crime. They do not work to protect juveniles, uh, if anything. Areas that implement juvenile curfews have uh, slight increases in problems rather than decreases compared to areas that don't have curfews. Uh, and one of the things that's uh, occurred in the modern era that's not often not talked about is juvenile crime has plummeted to the point. It's down 80 or 85 percent from the era of the 1990s where curfews were first uh, begin to be resurrected uh, in, in many cities around the country. It's fallen to the point where actually uh, Juveniles today are less likely to commit crime than people in their 40s. And it's, it's really uh, misdirected in a lot of ways. And uh, we found that curfews basically waste police time 
while uh, getting law-abiding youth off the streets and doing very little about real crime. Calfani Jure, that's a great pivot uh, to something that I think we're going to talk about, not only in this segment, but in the segment about demonstrators and curfews during times of demonstration, which is, you know, what you really don't want to do uh, if you're in law enforcement is take law-abiding people and turn them into offenders. In other words, people uh, take people who really aren't doing anything bad. They're outside. If they're kids, they're outside playing. If they're adults peacefully demonstrating and you turn them into offenders and put them into the system uh, and process them. And and this seems to me to be part of the problem with the juvenile curfew, right? It assumes uh, that people, sh- that young people should be treated as offenders just based on where they're standing at a certain time of day. Maybe you can comment a little more on that. Sure. And I just I just wanted to agree with Mike in that as a police officer or as a former police officer, one of the things you don't want an officer to do is to take that sort of valuable resource, if you will, the sort of valuable labor of the officer and put them towards uh, normal practices that kids engage in. Right. So this idea of sort of being out uh, during nocturnal hours and, and that's very vague, right? Nocturnal hours sometimes in the law is defined as from 11 p.m. on. And in some jurisdictions, we define nocturnal hours when sun sets. So you don't want to take law enforcement out of service in order to handle essentially what is non-criminal um, activities by and large. Now, this doesn't sort of excuse the idea that there are a small number of youth who engage in illegal and illicit um, practices. Uh, But by and large, most juveniles engage in what juveniles engage in, right? They're out, uh, about in the public square. Um, And and so, yeah, so I just wanted to agree with that. I do want to sort of of stretch the history of curfews back a bit further. Certainly they get their origins uh, in, in, in Europe um, and they go back as far as the ninth century. They come back up during the Norman conquests in, in the 11th century. But in the 1990s, Mike is correct. Curfews became a significant attention for us because of the rise in crime, because of the, uh, the Clinton uh, endorsed and also supported by then Senator Biden, uh, the crime bill of the 1990s, which said that you know, youth were going crazy and violence, uh, youth violence was on the rise. And we had to do something about, quote unquote, these super predators. But prior to that, um, we've been concerned about uh, juveniles uh, in the 70s or rather in the 60s. We started writing about it more in the 70s. We were concerned about it in the 40s after World War II. But, but, but curfews themselves predate the Civil War in that we were concerned about indigenous populations as well as African-American populations uh, being in the public square. And so we used curfews then. Uh, In the mid or the close of the 19th century, when in fact we had an increased immigration from South Central and Eastern European countries, um, and these uh, uh, ethnic groups weren't considered white or American at the time, uh, there was an emphasis on uh, enforcing curfews. Um, and essentially what curfews then become is a way of us to sort of stigmatize groups who we think exist outside the bounds of either citizenship or Americanness. 
It's a great point. It actually goes back. I found laws from the early 1700s, um, both here in New England and in the South, uh, where, yes, a slave, a black person and a, a Native American person, a mulatto, uh, could not be out after a certain time unless accompanied by essentially uh, a master. And so, Mike Mills, when you not, not to draw a direct line, an unbroken line from that to the present, but it, it is when you look at it statistically, when you control for variables, I get the feeling that in your research, I don't know, three white kids bouncing a ball at a playground after 9 p.m., they're just going to be treated differently on the whole, on average, than three kids of color doing the same thing? Yes, we found uh, actually uh, the juvenile curfew tends to stem more from the old sunset laws, which were intended to uh, rid more affluent areas of cities, mainly white areas of what they considered undesirable citizens, which were mainly black at the time. And uh, these sunset laws were enforced in a lot of cities in the South and also quite a few in other areas of the country uh, prior to, uh, you know, in the Jim Crow days. Uh, the juvenile curfew is really kind of along that same thing, that there are people uh, you don't want on the streets, certain kinds of people you don't want out in public. And curfews tend to crop up very often in areas uh, that are gentrifying, uh, in suburbs that are uh, seeing increased minority populations, uh, malls that border areas, uh, malls and shopping districts that border areas uh, where there are high minority populations, such as Pasadena's Old Town or Oklahoma City's Bricktown or Minneapolis's Mall of America. All of those are likely to see curfews more uh, crop up and be more vigorously enforced. And we studied curfews, uh, kind of Connecticut itself as kind of an interesting contrast. Uh, we studied the curfew in Vernon, Connecticut, that actually came about because of an adult incident uh, that frightened the, the town, and uh, they established a juvenile curfew. And when we studied it, we compared it to other Connecticut towns without curfews and towns around the country. And we found that Vernon actually had a slight increase in crime after implementing the juvenile curfew. And more important, we looked at curfew citations and found that 99% plus of the youth who were apprehended by police and I want to congratulate the police for putting such details on the curfew citation, were doing absolutely nothing wrong. They were simply playing basketball or uh, coming home from movies or things like that. Now, the city that contrasts that is New Haven, which uh, does have a definite crime problem. And uh, Chief Pastore uh, in New Haven in the 1990s, and I know Chief Pastore had some other issues, but he uh, implemented uh, some community policing programs and specifically rejected curfews and had much more success in reducing crime than cities that implemented juvenile curfews. So our research uh, generally finds that, that these are uh, completely ineffective uh, and, and really tend to create some antagonistic situations between officers and youth. Yeah, Calfani, you know, f- from your point of view as a former police officer too, I think what Mike is saying is interesting because a curfew is a very broad brush, right? I mean, uh, uh, somebody who's doing community policing uh, might understand a specific situation, a specific group of people, young people standing in a particular place. Um, you know, given this, what that police officer knows about those people. But if you're going to have a curfew and you're going to kind of enforce it anything close to uniformly, you're going to throw out all the nuance that you have about your community, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, alongside of uh, community policing, and, and by the way, community policing must be more than just having police in the community, which I think is how it's defined and also practice. But it would be a great uh, um, 
uh, sort of support supplement uh, to ensuring that uh, communities are safe and healthy and well. If we did have curfews where there is particularly sort of um, incidents of crime, you know, one of the, uh, we purport in fact that curfews are to, uh, to, at least as a recent, to keep youth from being victimized, right? And so, uh, you know, in that regard, they would be a wonderful counterpart as a, speaking as a police officer, um, but they are selectively enforced. And I agree uh, with Mike. Um, the sort of research suggests that the benefits of it is, is zero uh, to null, or it's just simply inconsistent that curfews actually work. And, and curfews, in fact, may, in fact, cause more sort of juridical harms in that there's a question about the constitutionality uh, of it all. Now, with youth, we, we, we sort of, in criminology and in the law, we say, well, uh, do youth have parallel sort of constitutional rights um, that we should sort of consider or be concerned with? And I think to some degree, we've, the courts have said, well, not as much as, as adults. But, but curfews sort of brings into view the really the, the problematic issue, constitutionality issue, um, thinking about freedom of assembly, um, freedom of travel, um, and, and thinking about other sort of constitutional issues. Now, from a law enforcement perspective, uh, having a curfew uh, in force or in place that police officers can enforce just increase uh, the possible opportunities I have to encounter someone. In other words, it serves as a pretext for me to then go fishing for something else. Mm -hmm. And so let me step away from being a former law enforcement and a, and a professor. I'm African-American. Uh, and I, unfortunately, based on the history of policing, I think I might want less contact yeah. with law enforcement. But if I am assumed to be young or, for example, my son is, is out and about uh, and curfews become the grounds by which the officer will make contact with him, there's an increased possibility that something untoward might come out of that. Right. So, and Mike Meals, just to, to build on what uh, Califani Touré was just saying, um, you know, you talked about the Vernon case. The Vernon case actually, the Vernon law actually went to the Connecticut State Supreme Court and was, I believe, upheld. And, and the pattern here, when you look at it, and I also read a Justice Department kind of white paper on this from the uh, 1990s, is you have to build some kind of First Amendment provision into your juvenile curfew law if you want it to survive an appellate challenge, right? That, that, that you know, whether or not you really mean it or not, at least on the books, you've got to say this doesn't apply in situations where it would curb people's legitimate First Amendment rights. Do I, I have that correct? You have that correct. Um, courts, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has upheld curfew laws. I don't think they're particularly well-reasoned decisions, but and they did. They were in response, uh, uh, as the other speaker said, in uh, response to very high crime rates in many urban areas in the early 1990s. They were kind of an emotional response. So the U.S. Supreme Court has upheld curfews. And so lower courts are, are bound by these kinds of decisions uh, for the most part. But the courts have held that uh, juveniles, for example, cannot be curfewed if they're engaging in legitimate First Amendment uh, free speech. So I guess if you wore a T-shirt saying, I politically oppose the curfew, 
that would be a legitimate free speech and you would not be subject to it. Um, that's, of course, not been tested or refined in court. But yes, uh, they're seen as uh, potential infringements on free speech, which gets to an area you raised earlier about the effect of curfews on the recent uh, Black Lives Matter protests. Right. And we'll be getting to that in the, in the second segment a little bit. But um, yeah, California, I want to come back to a couple of things that you said, and I think they're sort of worth um, digging in a little bit. Uh, you talked about the, the rise of curfews during the Clinton administration as a result of Clinton era crime policies and particularly that notion of the super predator. And it seems like at that moment, the curfew goes or leans harder in one direction than the other. It goes from it being at least nominally a law that protects juveniles from drifting into delinquency to a law that assumes certain juveniles are dangerous, certain juveniles are quote-unquote super predators, and that the community essentially needs to be protected from those juveniles, right? That seems to me there's a little bit of a paradigm or maybe a major paradigm shift going on right about there. Well, absolutely. I, I think, though, for African-Americans or for anyone who's considered outside of the pale of American citizenship, um, there is always an assumption that, um, that, that that criminality is at play or these are criminals in the waiting or criminals to be discovered. Um, and so there's always, uh, unfortunately and sadly to say, there's been this sort of practice of the uh, policing, for example, uh, to increase their surveillance and, con and punitive context, in fact, with African-American uh, uh, communities or Latinx communities. You know, I'll give you an example. In 2016, um, there was a study done in Austin, Texas, and they looked at the issuance of citations for violators of the curfew. Uh, and in fact, uh, African-Americans at the time had only represented roughly 8% of the city population. But they received in, in total nearly 22 to 23% of all citations. So there's always been this sort of disproportionality uh, to the enforcement. And so we talk about selective enforcement. Unfortunately, enforcement um, is often sort of characterized by race and class and, and to some degree gender. Uh, but this is an example of where the enforcement, um, you know, um, was disproportionate. Now, um, one of the things I can say, in fact, uh, about stop, question, and frisk, I mean, we see the germs of stop, question, and, and frisk uh, in this idea that juveniles are, at least particularly in the 90s, are super predators, particularly African-Americans and Latinx. And so it's no wonder then in the 2000s and even uh, sort of stop, question, and frisk of, of juveniles continues to happen it just goes undocumented, except pursuant to probable, uh, probable cause-based arrests. Um, that, that you see this because it ingrained in the American consciousness uh, is that these outsiders are going to cause the devolution of American civilization. Um, just very quickly, uh, we need to wrap the segment up pretty soon. But um, Calvani, one more thing that I wanted to touch on with you is this notion that this is curfews are sort of a one size fit all social policy. Uh, but 
people's lives are not all the same. And very specifically, uh, people who uh, are living in urban situations, who are socioeconomically socioeconomically disadvantaged, uh, are more, or let's put it another way, are less likely to have their own backyards where they can play in at night, uh, that they are more likely to be out in public spaces. So it just seems as though, you know, there's a sense in which the law doesn't fit the reality. Absolutely. So um, in 2008, uh, when the the economy just crashed, uh, um, in fact, African-American, those who were in possession of homes lost much of their equity if not losing their homes altogether. African-American home ownership, for example, uh, is just a fraction of what white home ownership is uh, in the U.S. Uh, And and so what what I'm getting at here is that African-Americans and other poor people are pushed into the public square in ways that uh, their counterparts are not. They lack private property. Uh, They lack private space. And in urban communities, in fact, you have the disinvestment uh, into public recreation. In fact, it's one of the first uh, items on the chopping block when uh, local municipalities or state um, governments or federal governments, for that matter, have to um, become more austere because of the, lacks, the lack of revenue coming in. But there's a lack, if you will, of access to private or quasi-private space. So you find African-Americans and Latinos or Latinx, uh, poor people, queer people, uh, women, uh, more so in public, public squares, which uh, exposes them uh, to the precarities of a... Uh, a curfew. So Mike Mayles, uh, as we get ready to wrap up this particular part of our conversation, you know, you've you've said that these curfews, the, the implementation of curfew laws, the enforcement of curfew laws seems to go in cycles and the cycle kind of trails actual activity, right? Somehow or other, these laws uh, actually come in when juvenile crime is on the downturn, not when there's some kind of noticeable upsurge. So is this just a self-perpetuating weird cycle? I mean, we're, we're not going to get rid of these laws, I assume. Well, I think we need a fundamental change uh, in, in attitudes uh, toward youth. Um, yes, you're quite correct. Uh, California's youth arrest for criminal activities peaked in 1989. Curfew arrest peaked in, in 1998. So there was almost a decade's time lag between the time the cities geared up curfews uh, and and the problem they were supposed to address had been declining for for 10 years. And now juvenile crime, as I mentioned, has fallen to such a low level that I think it's really time to do a major reassessment of our attitudes toward young people. And also toward the fact that this massive, massive decline in youth uh, crime occurred as the youth population was becoming much more racially diverse. Uh, which is contrary to a lot of expectations of the super predators and so forth that were perpetrated about 20 or 30 years ago and some ideas that uh, youth are innately inclined to crime and all of that. Those are ideas out of the past. And so I think we need a wholesale reassessment. And uh, Finally, I would just say uh, no one disputes that police have to take real criminals off the street. Uh, I, I think that that's something uh, we, we all agree on. But uh, I think the idea of... Uh, uh, creating police contacts between law-abiding citizens that are going to be antagonistic is, is a real mistake, uh, and, and we need to move away from that. 
All right. Great place to stop uh, for this segment. Uh, Mike Mills, an American sociologist and senior researcher at the Center for Juvenile and Criminal Justice in San Francisco. Uh, Calfani Torre is going to stay with us, with us, assistant professor of criminology at Quinnipiac University, former police officer. We're going to get now to the demonstrations of June 2020 after this. All right, we're back. We're doing a show about curfews. Uh, the uh, creator uh, uh, and idea maker for the show is our intern, Khalil Rahman. Uh, so we're going to now turn to the Black Lives Matter protests. And uh, one of the ways in which law enforcement and civic leadership at times responded to the protests was to institute curfews. Uh, and we'll talk about whether or not that um, is always the right thing to do with uh, two guests. You've already met Kalfani Calf- Touré, assistant professor of criminology at Quinnipiac University, former police officer. Dennis Keeney is also a former police officer and a current professor in John, uh, John Jay Department of Criminal Justice. Um, so, uh, Dennis Keeney, welcome to our conversation. Going to see if we can uh, bring Dennis up here. Dennis Keeney, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, Thanks. good. So, um, you know, th- this happened in a lot of cities and towns, right, all across America. As the demonstrations built up, uh, curfews were imposed uh, and frequently enforced. But I get the feeling that within the world that you and our other guest, Calfani Touré, inhabit, the world of criminal justice research, there's still a fair amount of debate about whether th- this is always a good idea, whether having a curfew at a time uh, of demonstration I- is always the right move. Where where does it sit for you right now? Well, curfews serve a, a fairly important function. You have, you have to think, when, when you think about the police handling and demonstrations, they really have two major responsibilities. The first is to protect the rights of the demonstrators to be able to have their say, express what they have to say and so forth, and to do so safely. But they also have the obligation of protecting the community around the demonstrators. And as a demonstration wears on, it has some tendency to um, lose focus, to lose some control. And a lot of folks are, are perfectly content to take advantage of the opportunity. And that's where the looting and so forth occurs. And so the idea behind the uh, the curfews is to um, limit the, in in the short term to limit the amount of peripheral activity that would be a problem for for uh, other communities. So you know the the problem here it seems to me, and you know in the previous segment we were just talking about regular juvenile curfews, but there's another problem here, which it seems to me that if you have the curfews. And, and they're not used exp- explicitly and strictly to isolate looters and uh, other people committing acts of violence, but to pick up a lot of people. You know, I mean, in Washington, you had 300 people arrested for violating curfew on, in one night. Uh, on another night, we had thousands of protesters uh, trapped on the Manhattan Bridge for hours because they were marching in violation of curfew. Uh, 269 of them, I think, were arrested on another night. Uh, you know, in Philadelphia, 492 
people uh, arrested for violating curfew restrictions. You don't really want to spend police time, A, arresting people who aren't really doing anything wrong, and B, having to process them through the system, and C, we're in a time of COVID where actually, ironically, curfews are sometimes being used to try to restrict COVID transmission. I mean, it seems like a policy, Dennis, where you're picking up people who are just kind of there, you know, you, you wonder how effective that really is. Well, it depends on what your goals are. Um, it's true that in D.C. that they arrested hundreds of people, but it's also true that in the first and second night they had hundreds of businesses that were looted and windows broken and products stolen. Um, and so the, the point of the curfews there was to attempt to um, head that off to prevent that from occurring so that by simply being in Georgetown, for example, uh, at 11 o'clock at night on the streets, uh, gave the police um, grounds to be able to stop you and, and uh, at, at the very least inquire why you're there. The incident you refer to in New York on the bridge, uh, I would say would be an, an example of it being badly used. Um, because there's a value in them doesn't mean that every time that they're used, they're used well. Right. So, so Kalfani, maybe you can talk a, a little bit about this from your perspective, too. Um, I, I guess, you know, ultimately you have to sort of begin thinking, well, on, on balance, do these things do more harm than good? Is there a way to use them in order to curb looting without creating a tremendous amount of distrust at a time when you need civic trust? Well, so there's, there's a world of something here, and I would just try to pull out a couple of points. The first thing is to say that, again, you don't want to take law enforcement out of service for the hour or more that will be required to process someone when they should be out fighting uh, real crime, right? The second point is, is that when you think about curfews in a time of legitimate uh, protests and seeking redress, right? The majority of people who are engaged in social protests are not wrongdoers. There's a small percentage of them who, who may be inclined as anarchists or whoever they are to engage in vandalism, et cetera. But by and large, this is not the majority of people. So we have to refine our intervention strategies in law enforcement to identify those um, perpetrators and not to sort of stigmatize or criminalize people who are engaged in legitimate and seeking legitimate redress. The second thing is like, it's just not wise. It's not prudent when you think about the top five clusters in this pandemic, COVID-19, the top five clusters are in jails and prisons around the country. So then therefore to take custodial arrests of someone uh, because you're concerned about the sort of spread, if you will, of, of this virus and pandemic, and then to put them in environments where they are in fact exposed seems to me uh, to be somewhat wrongheaded. Now, um, so the question then is, how do we, as, as, as uh, how do we support legitimate protests, those who seek legitimate redress from an issue of police violence that have happened in this country against minority citizens for far too long? How do we address that and allow people to have their say without criminalizing them? Right. So, um, so Dennis, I'm also wondering whether there's a sense in which perception is reality here. In other words, if in fact people believe 
that civic leadership and, and law enforcement leadership are imposing curfews with the goal of limiting violence, with the goal of keeping everybody safe. Um, that's one thing. And if, on the other hand, a group of people believe, well, no, this is just a way for them to conduct sweeps, you know, in which they just sweep us up uh, and, and process us through the system, they're going to react to it differently. I mean, is there a way in which if this is going to be a successful policy, it kind of has to be sold to the people who will be on the other end of it? Absolutely. Um, just because there's value in a policy, as I said, doesn't mean that it's always done well or it's always applied well. Uh, I agree with the earlier comment as well that the and, and as I mentioned, the primary responsibility of the police with the demonstration is to protect the demonstration, to ensure that the demonstrators have the opportunity to express themselves, to have, have their say, to redress their concerns. Um, that said, um, as was was pointed out, uh, you have some peripheral folks who are intent on misconduct, and you have some that, that simply take the advantage to commit crime. Um, narrowly used curfews give the police the option of being able to head those, those off. A well-managed protest would involve communication between the police and those doing the protesting uh, so that you can establish essentially ground rules so that you, um, you, you have fewer of these problems. So, uh Kalfani Touré, one uh, term that comes up in talking about this uh, is blue fragility. Uh, uh, explain to people what that means. Sure. So blue fragility is, uh, and let me just say at the outset, it is not to be taken as a weakness amongst police officers, but it is in fact a strategic maneuvering of strength, whereby police officers, in order to deflect attention away from their sort of almost exclusive use of force. There, this sort of fictional idea that law enforcement alone can bring about public safety uh, and deflection of legitimate criticism uh, against law enforcement where there has been moments of excessive or gratuitous violence used. Um, they engage in these sort of defensive and protective uh, mechanisms. So for example, we've seen this in recent days uh, several officers um, uh, sort of performed a work call out uh, in Atlanta after the two officers were criminally indicted uh, in Mr. Rashad uh, Brooks' uh, murder. Uh, we also saw this in Buffalo, New York, where 57 emergency response team members um, resigned from that particular unit uh, in protest of the two officers who were criminally disciplined for uh, pushing this 75-year-old man, causing him to suffer brain injury. Uh, we see it in examples of blue fragility, uh, blue fragility in examples of the retort, Blue Lives Matter, in response to the call that Black Lives Matter. Uh, blue fragility is uh, it's really uh, an interesting way that officers defend the profession, not necessarily the bad apples, but defend the profession from reproach and for criticism and reforms um, and restores officers to the sort of symbolic role of moral agents. Um, you know, blue fragility, uh, I've been through three police academies uh, and you are almost immediately sort of oriented to the manners of blue fragility in the sort of informal culture, if not part of the formal culture. And what it does is I think it places all of us to 
believe in the need and value of law enforcement in our society, it places even us at, at risk because it increases the tensions between law enforcement and, and community members. Now, one of the things I think just before we switch, one of the ways in which we should deal with blue fragility is to develop blue stamina. And that is multiple things. But one is that officers need to become familiar with the way in which law enforcement as a profession, as an institution, has been used uh, to support racial stratification, structural racism, the history in an essence of police policing and race. And that's something that I think most officers would tell you they never received in the police academy. We've never sort of understood what our role has been. And when we encounter a young urban male or somebody, it's not that they distrust us personally, but that our uniforms carry history, the history of racial suppression. So, um, so Dennis Keeney, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking about the curfews is uh, you, you're a former police officer and, and so is Calfani. I'm not. But if I were a police officer and I were going through something like the like June of 2020 across America, I would kind of want two jobs. And I think you've described them very well. I would want to make sure the protests were uh, as safe and peaceful as possible. So I would want to be in negotiation with their leaders to make sure things went well. And then I would want to keep uh, an eye out for bad guys, for people who are taking advantage of this to bust into stores or whatever. But I, it seems like the 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 role of or the imposition of having to enforce uh, um, a curfew is an imposition on police officers too. It gives them another job to do, a job in which they may have to treat as lawbreakers that same group of people who are basically peacefully assembled. So, I, I don't know. Is it just an? Is it fair to ask police officers to enforce a curfew at a time like that? It depends on how they're drawn. Um, a, a useful curfew should be very narrowly drawn. It should be very short term. It should be um, uh, targeted in such a way that you're able to use it as a tool as opposed to a, a blanket uh, blunt instrument. And so uh, yeah, I think if you're, you're going to just impose broad based curfews, then you've really complicated the, the uh, task for the police. I mean, it, it a couple of comments that that uh, kind of struck me. Um, first, the notion of the fragility of the police. Um, it is true that that police tend to defend their profession, but they're not unique in that sense. You don't find doctors, lawyers, and priests testifying against each other either. Um, and so um, we have an obligation as a society to be very clear and very specific about what we want of our police. Uh, the police have, have been pretty consistent, for example, that many of the things that we ask them to do, they're not well suited to do. Uh, but we call the police to handle them because they'll come and because they will do something. Uh, so if we want to, along the line of the whole defund movement, if we, if we want to reorient our police and the kinds of things the police are doing, then we need to be very clear and very specific about what it is we want, what we want to change. Uh, we can't expect them to be one-stop shopping and then, and then be concerned when uh, they, they have difficulty handling that. 
All right, so we've been talking about curfews. We're going to keep talking about curfews, uh, and we're going to shift a little bit towards the ancient history of those curfews. Uh, we have been very fortunate to have, uh, for the first two segments of our show today, Calfani Touré, Assistant Professor of Criminology at Quinnipiac University, former police officer. And you just heard Dennis Keeney, former police officer, current professor in the John Jay Department of Criminal Justice. So where do curfews come from? We're going to tell you some of their fascinating history. Okay, time to say a few quick thank yous. Um, Kat Pastor is there in the studio making it possible for us to work remotely. Uh, she's the person who's keeping it all going there at the board. Uh, Betsy Kaplan is a senior producer and uh, somebody who helped shepherd this episode to its its current flowering. Uh, and Khalil Rahman, we're so proud of him. Uh, he's an intern. He actually started with us way, way back a long time ago, and his internship was cut short by the COVID outbreak. Uh, he came back. He's a persistent guy, uh, and he got this show on the air. So hats off uh, to Khalil. Uh, all right. So, you know, you clean your books out. You call, call your books every once in a while. Uh, you go through them. And so and you got to get rid of some of them. The book that I never get rid of, one of the books, is At Day's Close, uh, Night in Times Past. It is by the historian uh, Roger, A. Roger Ekerch. I may not even be saying that correctly, despite my great devotion for the book, but I'll find out in just a second. Uh, and uh, he's the author of five books, including, as I say, At Day's Close, Night in Times Past. He's uh, joining us now. First of all, uh, uh, how do you say your last name? Uh, you got it uh, entirely correct. E. All right. All right. So, I mean, reading your book, I, the first thing we have to establish here is that, you know, in 1100, night wasn't just sort of another version of the day, you know, the way that we treat it now. You know, the, 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 these were two completely juri different jurisdictions, two almost completely different states of the world. Night was a really serious thing, right? Exactly. Uh, far more so than today, as as different as day and night. So, um, with that in mind, uh, there were uh, often laws created to to prevent bad things from happening at night, and bad things could easily happen at night. We sh we started off the show by saying curfew is, comes from an old French word meaning to to cover the fire. But I mean, as early sure. as eleven hundred uh, or or thereabouts, William the Conqueror imposes a curfew on all of England. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, the uh, skeptics uh, among historians believe that he did so to prevent any possibility of domestic unrest. Uh, on the other hand, and, and these two uh, factors are not mutually exclusive, on the other hand, uh, Europe in the Middle Ages uh, was quite uh, consistent in uh, shutting down at night, uh, at least within cities and towns which were surrounded, they were fortified by massive walls of earth, brick, or stone. 
Right, and you cut out, you got caught outside those walls at night, and that was a different kind of scary experience. But we should say that, for example, with William's curfew, it's not the curfew we think of now where you have to get off the street and go inside and watch television. You were supposed to have, your house was supposed to be dark during this curfew, right? Yes, there, there were various stages uh, during the centuries from the Middle Ages to the late 17th and 18th century. The first, uh, as I just uh, implied, was to uh, return uh, to your city or town uh, before dusk, uh, before the gates uh, would be uh, shut. That was the first stage. Uh, Secondly, there were steps taken increasingly as time progressed to make certain, as you just suggested, that people confine themselves to their homes, generally by, certainly by dark, no later, even in summer, by 8 or 9 p.m. And there were a number of uh, steps that were taken uh, to ensure that people could not uh, circulate in a town or city at night. Right. So and among those steps, uh, at least one point you describe in the book, just these enormous chains on spools and these chains would be stretched across the street, kind of, you know, roughly waist high or so, which, you know, created its own set of dangers. I mean, these streets are pitch dark. It's before it's before illumination. So if you're riding a horse down that street or if you're doing anything else down that street, you can't see this enormous chain you're about to whack into. Correct. Uh, the city of New- Nuremberg had 400 sets of these uh, chains. Uh, They blocked thoroughfares in cities from uh, Copenhagen to uh, Parma. They were designed to uh, prevent the passage, uh, not only of wagons, of individuals on horseback, but but also because they consisted normally of several strands of uh, pedestrians. And then there were some cities like Paris uh, that chained their rivers, in this case the Seine, of course, to prevent anyone uh, from entering a city uh, by water. Yeah, so no Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn on a boat uh, there. There's a chain uh, across <laughs> across the river. So, you know, as the we're, we have to kind of speed date through this, and I, I hope people do track down your book because it's, it's amazing and it's really interesting. But oh, um, as, as we move towards primitive kinds of illumination, you know, whether it's uh, sometimes just, you know, thousands of lanterns uh, around a city, you start to see some easing of the curfews. Maybe people just kind of overwhelming the curfews because they just want to be out. They're going to be out. But it does seem, just as we see now, that there are certain minority groups who don't benefit from some easing of the curfews, right? There are, there are in cities, people who, who don't have equal rights after dark. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, the vast majority of people early on uh, in the late Middle Ages are not permitted outdoors uh, after dark. Uh, 
the exceptions uh, really reflect what these societies considered were the most important services. So those allowed to uh, leave their homes, including uh, doctors, the equivalent of uh, trash collectors who were known as scavengers, uh, the night watch, of course, uh, one of whose duties was to help enforce these curfews, and veterinarians, uh, given that the fact that the loss of a cow or a pig or a goat uh, could uh, be uh, devastating to a, uh, even a middle-class, even a middle-class family. Furthermore, uh, even once curfews began to be liberalized, uh, they came with a number of restrictions. Uh, The most discriminated group uh, consisted of Jews. Mm-hmm. who were expected either to remain outside a city's gates or within an urban ghetto. You know, we're, we're kind of running out of, we're, we're sort of out of time here. I, I just want to, first of all, thank A. Roger E. Kirch for doing this today. The book is At Days Closed, Night and Times Past, and I really encourage people to check it out. And yes, I think there are consistent patterns that have run through the entire hour of this show. You know, Roger talks about the distrust of William the Conqueror. Was he doing this to keep people safe, or was he doing it to consolidate his power? That conversation is happening, happening in India right now, where there's a COVID-19 curfew, or is it Modi uh, wanting to consolidate his power? Power. And we've talked all the way through about how curfews seem to apply differently to persecuted minorities. Uh, it is it's it's usually a kind of social control uh, that uh, privileges one group over another. So anyway, thanks for listening to a show about curfews. Thanks to all of our terrific guests and to Khalil and Betsy and Kat. And we'll be back with more shows. I'm not sure about tomorrow, but next week, definitely. <laughs>